welcome to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Every fortnight, we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode three, Goodness, Truth and Beauty. about the true, the good, and the beautiful in relation to the three parts of the man. There's quite a lot of literature about the true, the good, and the beautiful in the last two and a half thousand years, but there's very little adequate definition of the relation between them. If we relate them to the three parts of the human being, the head, chest, and the tummy, then we can place the true in the head beautiful in the chest, vanity to add stone now, and the good in the thumb. And we'll see why we place them in this position. When you talk about true, you are making an assessment about non-deviation. If you say that is a true triangle, you mean that it's not bent in such a way that you can't recognize it to be a triangle. If you say that line is truly straight, you mean it doesn't wobble, it doesn't divert from its direction. Now the etymology of true is interesting because you can see that TR implies a turning process. And the essence of truth is the circle drawn from a center with a pair of compasses. A true circle is a circle in which your compasses are not ordinary education authorities, school issue, which wobble about and are very loose in the joint, so that when you start to strike the circle, the radius extends, and you might get a circle that looks a bit like this. Supposing I should get my compass to start to turn, and the legs of the compass begin to widen, and it goes like that. And I see that it's wrong, so I bring them in again and go like that, <laughs> and then join up. Now, school issue compasses for kids actually do that kind of thing. Do you remember them? Fun little brass things. They occasionally come on the second hand market, it's about five pence gross. They're very good for filing down to make tools with. To make a real circle, a true circle, a perfect circle, you must have an absolutely rigid pair of compasses. And to get a rigid anything costs money. Rather funny that, isn't it? Rigidity is an essential of truth. We'll see why there are certain kinds of philosophers who dislike truth intensely in this sense. Because if the true is the undeviating, the rigid, then it appears that the living process, which is full of deviations, flexibilities, adjustments and compromises, cannot be true in this sense. 
If we go back a little, consider our trine, the true. The true, imagine this circle is perfect. I hadn't got my rigid compass with me, so I did an approximation to it freehand. And the ink in this thing is varying under the exposure to the air, it tends to dry, it's a bit thick, it's a bit wobbly, and so on. Luckily I have an eyeball more or less approximating in a section through it to a circle, so I can draw a circle by thinking of my eyeball and going round it. And for all general usages, it's not bad to do it that way. Remember you have an eyeball and roll it, and follow the rolling with your pen, you'll get an approximate circle. Now, if we say in this circle, might have been called rota long ago, wheel, we can see how this TR got into the word true. T-R-U, T-R-U. The O and the U are the same letter originally. So that when we talk about the true, we're talking about the rotation. And we're saying that the character of this rotation is that it maintains the same length of the radius. And the more accurately it maintains that same length of radius, the more true will be the circle. Now we're not to think that when we're talking about a circle in this way, that it is of interest only to geometricians. Because the concept of the true has really bugged philosophers for a very, very long time. You go back 3,000 years and we find human thinkers asking what is true. And then they ask what is real. And then they ask is the true the real? And is the real really true? And there is very little definition in profane philosophy about what this truth is. And supposing we say that when you rotate your compass, you enclose an area, and we say it has been enclosed, included, and the path outside it has been excluded, included part meaning closed, then a circle simultaneously includes and excludes space. It includes a finite amount of space and it excludes an infinite amount of space. This is rather funny because most people think that when you divide something, you divide it into halves. But in this case, the halves are very, very unequal. The internal half, the included, is finite and the external half is infinite. And this is very, very important for philosophy and for life to recognize this. Because when we come to examine what we call a form, form is a Latin word, forma, form means exactly the same thing as rota and circle, sphere, and so on. And it implies a binding line, a ligature, or an encapsulated zone, an included, enclosed, and an excluded, outclosed. 
the Anglo-Saxon performing shape and the Greek for that same thing would be ADOS once we get our word idea. So all those are synonyms. An idea, ADOS, shape, form, rota, the circle, the sphere, the true are all synonyms. And we see how important this is when we come to think. Because when we think, we encapsulate forms, shapes of experiences in idea. If I look at the lights in the room, close my eyes and reproduce them, I have an idea of a light in the room. And the idea in my mind, if it is derived from looking in focus at a lamp, is like the lamp that I saw outside. So my external world, the excluded, the lamp, my internal world, inside my skin surface, have a correspondence. There is a light outside me, that is outside this body, and there is another light, mental light, inside me. Because when I look at the lamp over there, and close my eyes, I can still see the same shape. I can actually see it to the same intensity. When it's that intense, on the inside, as it is on the outside, we call it an eidetic. An eidetic form, a form that is sharply clear, as if we were looking at the actual external situation. Now, you might think that that isn't so terribly important for human sanity, it is. Because if all your ideas on the inside of your skin are true ideas in correspondence with the external forms that you see, then you are sane. And you have a remarkable power of adjustment to the external world if your internal world is actually furnished with shapes, colors, forms, and so on as it is outside. The inner and the outer being correspondent, the being is then true. When the inner, says one of the apocryphal gospels, shall be as the outer, when the above shall be as the below, when the microcosm shall be as the macrocosm, then heaven is attained. That is to say, heaven equals the balance of power, and if I have inside my skin surface an idea, a shape, a form, an image, correspondent with one on the outside, then if I understand this image, I can adjust to the external world in terms of the image. So if I understand this thing in my hand is a kind of writing instrument, and that if it hasn't dried up, it will make a mark, and if I wish to make a mark, I can make a mark. If I understand what it means to be drawing a line at right angle, I can draw a line at right angle. If I understand what it means to bisect an angle, then I can bisect an angle. Thus, In other words, if I have an idea inside my skin for every element in the external world, and I understand the nature of this idea, 
I understand the nature of the external form corresponding with it, then I can do manipulations inside my skin with the ideas. And these manipulations, if they are truly correspondent with the external forms of the world, will allow me to do correspondent actions in the world. They will only allow me to do this, providing my ideas are true. If I say, I will now draw a triangle, there's a triangle. In drawing that triangle, I recognize its three-sidedness. And if I agree to use the term three-sided form equals triangle, then if I wish to draw a triangle, I can draw it. And if I wish to draw another kind of triangle called right angles, and I draw a right angle, and then it's completely the other side, I draw another kind of triangle, right angle triangle, and in the process, I can adjust <coughs> to things in the world that are like it. So if I wanted to go out to a shop and buy a right angle triangle, and I hadn't time to buy one, I would say to David, who has more time than I have, you know, he has a lot more time than I have, then I would say, would you mind going out and getting me a, a right angle triangle? And he would know what I meant, wouldn't he then? He knows what I mean. On the other hand, if I said go out and get me an isosceles triangle, he would go out and get one of those. Providing we have the same forms in our mind and the same terms in our mind, we can do another interesting thing. We can cooperate in the external world using manipulations on the inner world. We can do things inside our mind. And we can make relationships in the mind and discuss them in the mind and agree to divide the labors. And then we can go in two opposite directions and meet the mystical hour of 11 o'clock and there do some tremendously important deed because we have truly seen it in our mind and our mental elements are correspondent with those in the material, physical, external world. So the true is tremendously important. Now, if there were merely truth, there would be total rigidity in the world. Now, you probably all are now sufficiently familiar with this idea of the hexon, a circle which we make, and we take the compass, and we shift it from the center to the periphery, and we draw another circle like that. And then we shift the compass foot to there, and we draw another one like this. And we draw another one like this. And we draw another one like this. And we draw another. You see I'm performing the same operation. So once I've understood the operation that I simply move the compass round to the next intersection point, I can draw such a pattern. But also, if I understand it suddenly, I can proceed to draw another circle like this, and another one like this, and I can go wandering round the whole process, and I can cover this piece of sheeting perspex 
with this pattern. Now, the interesting thing about this pattern is that when truly drawn with an accurately made pair of compasses, we did, it will cover the paper with identical form. And they will be rigidly true. They will be unalterably circled and they will have the same radius and I could, given infinite time, spread out and keep drawing these circles everywhere. And if I had covered infinite space with those circles, then I would have covered infinite space with truth that is form, that is shape, unalterable, rigid. So that I could then make a rule, if there is a circle anywhere in space, then that circle has been crossed by six other circles. And there will be, apparently, an inner form of a six-petal flower in any one of them. So I can make a rule that all circles, whatever, that exist in this infinite diagram, obey the same law. I could then say that is the law. The Hebrew for law, law, same with Torah. Means the circle, the rotation. Man has given rise to the idea of law from the idea of the circle. Now there's a geometrical circle there, drawn by the compasses, and there's another circle that man has observed, the circle swept out by the earth in a year going round the sun. True, it turns out that it's slightly elliptoid, but that's because it gets pushed through space and distorted. But in principle, it is a circle. And the earth itself rotates on an axis and describes a circle with any point upon the earth. Thus the tip of Mount Everest is sweeping round with the earth, is drawing a circle through space. So we see here a geometrical diagram on the paper can be used to represent the orbit of a planet or the spin of a planet on its own axis. And we can take the same diagram and say it represents the spin of an electron around a proton in an atom or the spin of electron on its own axis. But everywhere we go we will find that this rotor, this wheel, this turning around the centre is everywhere the same. So the one universal law is rotation. Nietzsche built this up into the idea of eternal recurrence. The ancients had already built it up for him some 3,000 years earlier, which he well knew. What is being said there in the eternal recurrence is that if you draw a circle, it doesn't matter what you draw it with, if it's 65,000 miles across or 6 inches across, the ratio of the radius to the circumference will be the same. So one law rules all forms. Now, we can call this domination by this law of form, of rota, the classical mode of philosophy. And we can see then that a philosopher like Plato is very, very interested in truth. 
Now, if we remember the field drawn upon with the circle, and remember that each circle apparently has six petals in it, for each of six is hex, so we call it the hexonic field. And we imagine this hexonic field to be infinitely extended. And we imagine that this field of hexons is absolutely permeated with circles all interlocking in an identical way. There is one law for all the circles. And this law is called the law, it's called Torah, it's called Rukta, it's called Truth. So that when Plato is talking about that truth, or Leibniz, or Aristotle, or Descartes, or anybody else, when they're talking about truth, they're really talking about nothing except a circle, which includes finitude, excludes the infinite. And if it is to be taken seriously, that the true is rigid and absolute, then if any philosopher tries to conform to the truth in his action, he will become relatively rigid. There was a school of philosophers who actually did this. They were called the Stoics. And having decided that the universe is ruled by truth, logos, then they made themselves obey it. So if a lot of people died, and they knew that death was part of being born, they just said, well, that's what happens. If you get born, you die. And you remain in perfect mental balance because you understand the whole process. Now, a very ignorant, emotionally identified person, on losing a near and dear one, as they call them euphemistically, becomes agitated at the thought of who's going to inherit the money or something like that and they forget that they too will die. And they forget this great law of the cycle. To the born, certainly is death, the Buddha said. The Stoic mentality trained itself so that it could actually understand the inevitability of the recurrence of the truth, the inevitability that all things are cyclic, and therefore whatever you've got, you're going to lose, and whatever you lose, you'll eventually get back again at some remote point in the cycle of events. So this peculiar kind of view of reality, that reality is fundamentally true, meant to those philosophers, it is our duty to ourselves to make ourselves true, that is correspondent with that great cycle of events. Now this we can call the classical philosophical view, the elevation of the true to the highest position. Now, when we draw that hexonic field, when we cover infinite space, not only as a plane, but pile them above and below the original one, until we have a three-dimensional continuum of circles interlocked in this way, and we call it infinite truth, when we've got that firmly fixed in our minds, then nothing can happen except that when we look into this mesh of interlocking circles, we can see patterns. And all the patterns that exist in this space are called the real, the whole reality. 
Plato calls them the real, and they are eternal. Now, in Hindu philosophy, the same circles are declared to be made by sound. Now, you know that sound is an alternation of compression decompression. It's little thumps. There's a thump to relax, and thumps to relax, and thumps to relax. Sound waves are compression waves, and the dot in the center of the circle is viewed as the point upon which the thump is made, and the periphery is the relaxation limit. So thump onto the center, expand to the periphery, thump onto the center. And when this type of vibratory process goes on, then it is called the cosmic creative sound, and it is conceived to be eternal. It's eternal because all these vibrations go on simultaneously. And we contrast eternity with time in a very simple way. If I draw a line like that, you notice that I drew it in what you call time. That is, I started at one end and then went along. And if you had a watch on you, you could have counted one, two, three, four, five, six, or some other number, according to the speed of your counting. And you could have said that was the zero point when we start, and there's the first, second gone, second, third, fourth, fifth, like that. But we can also look at that line, now it is drawn, without scanning it. But so without running from one end to the other, we can see it grasp it, intuit it, apprehend it. Those are all synonyms. With one look of the eye, I see there's a line there. But if I'm not counting it out, time particle after time particle, if I'm seeing it simultaneously, then I am not seeing it temporarily, I am seeing it eternally. Now in the theory of the universe, of reality, that Plato popularized out of the mysteries of the temples of Greece, that Pythagoras popularized out of the mysteries of the temples of the Egyptians. In that theory, this vibratory field of hexonic forms is eternal and simultaneous in its vibrational behavior. It is not serial. And because it is not serial, that is coming one after the other, serial is from teeth, like that on a saw. There is one saw, there's a saw, funny saw with three teeth. If I want to count the teeth, I look at these tips. So one, two, three teeth. Here is the blade of the saw. The blade of the saw is one blade. By the shape of it, I say it is serrated, that is, toothed. So when I say I can count serially, that means to say I can focus my eye on the tips <coughs> here, which have been made by filing or doing something similar, and focusing on the tip, I can call each one a tooth tip. And then I can serialize, that is, tooth the way I look at the saw. But the blade itself is whole. 
one piece of metal. It has oneness. It has unity. And I'm counting the teeth because I'm insisting on focusing on the tips, on the sharp bits there. But if I look at the back of the saw here, I wouldn't have any teeth to count, and therefore I would not be serializing, and I would see the plain truth about the saw, is that the saw blade is made of one piece of metal. And I would distinguish between the two ways of looking, the saw as one, and the saw as many toothed. And if I look at the teeth and start counting them, it can take me a long time. But if I look at the whole blade, and I examine two or three teeth and say these teeth have the same depth and the same distance between them, and I take a quick look along the saw, and then I measure the first inch of the saw and count the teeth in that one inch, and then I measure the length of the blade and multiply that length by the number of teeth there were in an inch, then I know, without counting them all, how many teeth the saw has. And this way, I save time. I spend less time to see the reality of the saw and how it's made. Now, all this probably is very unfeminine, and probably not terribly of interest to the feminine part of the human being. It is the truth, it is the rigid, it is the cold, it is the undeviating. Mysteriously, it is absolutely unalterable. The universe is made in such a way that its fundamentals cannot be altered. Nobody can do anything about it. The Son of God in the great religions can do nothing about it. When power, that is God the Father, moves, necessarily that power moves in such a way that it builds up waveforms within it, and the totality of these waveforms adds up to the formal universe, the truth. And if power operates at all, it cannot help operating in a manner conformable to the law of moving power. So there is absolutely no escape. And one philosopher, Parmenides, thinking about this truth, said the universe is a great sphere which is true in its form, utterly unalterable. There is nothing we can do about it. Now some philosophers in that school would say, good, then we can leave everything as it is, because it's already true, perfect, and unalterable. So those at the top level of Greek aristocratic society were quite happy to believe Pythagoras knew a bit, quite happy to think Parmenides knew a lot, that Plato wasn't too ignorant of this principle, that nothing can be changed, that there is an eternal structure, an eternal true form, and that nothing can be done to alter it, and therefore human society cannot be altered. And this idea of the eternally true imposed itself on the human mind, and particularly the aristocratic mind, most pressingly, so that they became practically incapable of thinking in any way other than truly. True thought 
was the very essence of their philosophy and conformity to the truth was their ideal and their purpose, their goal towards which they strove and in the case of the great Stoics to a large degree attain that balance of soul that study of truth gives you but if we say that the idea here is the truth the form the idea in the mind is form is truth then at the opposite end of the same body down here we have will now will is rather funny because it is power initiating change and this way it is a very great problem because according to the doctrine of the truth the eternal truth there is no change the absolute principle is unalterable. Pi ratio rules everywhere. All circles have the same relationship between their radii and the circumference. All, in all worlds, at all times, in all places, all circles are under the law of pi ratio. And yet, mysteriously, there's something going on this is not accounted for, and that's something you change. And the initiator of the change we call will. At one end of your body, in the head, you have an idea. At the other end, you have a very mysterious power that seems to operate independently of ideas of the truth. It acts, as you say, cognitively, by drive, by impulse to act. And behind this impulse, there is initiative. There is that which introduces change. And this is called the good. The goo in good is simply a very primitive form of will. You know that in French that will would be spelt in the early French like that, as in Gil, William. The hard G has vanished, of the English word, will, but it used to be there, because to say will meant to go, it meant good. Sounds a bit Welsh. Now, the good meant to will a certain distance. You willed until you stopped, and you were going along, until you decided you'd gone far enough, and at that point you stopped and wrote the letter D. And that was the good. And these two are exactly opposite concepts. There is one utterly unalterable law, and yet mysteriously, something appears to be breaking the law. Now what can it be? Because if the law says that infinite space three-dimensional, is full of circles, all under the same law, pi ratio, and these circles cannot move because they're infinitely extended, and the infinitely extended cannot go anywhere because it is already there. An infinitely extended form cannot move. It's absolute and it is rigid. And yet it appears that I can move my hand through space. And this raises a tremendous problem. There is the classical view. The idea is true 
The idea is dominant. Only the idea is worth bothering. The idea turns you from an animal into a human, from a have-not into a have, from a proletarian into a very high-ranking international millionaire-type statement. The idea does But at the other end of the scale, there's this tremendous weird power that disobeyed the law of the idea. And this is called the will, the group. And it willed a certain distance. And having reached there, put on the D, it was called the good. Good is willing to a certain distance and then stopping. Now, if we say the idea is classical, we say the will is romantic. We say it's romantic with reference to the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire was built by men who were quite irrational, pushing out from a centre which they had built under the influence of a man who just married his brother, named Romulus, who killed Remus, and he was determined to make an empire and push out from that centre and keep pushing until he couldn't go any further. And then he would draw a big circle and say that is the extent of the Roman Empire. And therefore we say romantic, like the Romans. They just kept pushing out, pushing out, pushing out, until they were stopped. And wherever the people that they pushed against were not too strong, or not too well organized, they were able to overcome them. When they came up against very rough types, then they stopped, they left it be. They said, this is good, we've got so far. So the extent of the Roman Empire, at a certain period, was quite great, simply because they had irrationally gone out from the center. Rome was built with its first inhabitants, the ragtag and bobtail of Italy, invited into a non-city to build a city. They were invited in to get in on the ground floor before the city was built and promised citizenship if they got in quickly. Having got in, they were then organized and gradually they got recruits until they were able to start pushing out and build this mysterious empire of will. Now, if we examine this relation of the idea and the will, or the true and the good, we find that they're quite antithetic. Because the idea is eternally what it is. It is unalterably what it is, and it is necessarily static. Triangles remain triangles forever in all worlds. Circles remain circles, squares remain squares in all worlds and forever. But the will doesn't stay where it is. By its very, very being, it transcends its position. It is always pushing out from itself. So if we say at one end of the body you have a tendency to be a classical philosopher and to believe in an ultimate true proposition, the truth that can be attained by the intellect, at the other end of your body, you have a peculiarly edgeful nature which doesn't believe that the true is very important at all. And it pushes out and continuously transcends the position which had gone before. 
Well, some modern philosophers have made a little mistake out of this, and some of the early ones did. They talked about the self transcending itself. Now, if we draw a circle and say that represents the limit of a being, which we will call a self, so that he's living in a kind of cell, and we talk about pushing against the wall on the inside, using power to extend that circle. If we then say that the self has transcended itself, we're making a mistake. And it's funny how many philosophers do that. They talk about the self transcending itself. It doesn't. The self can never transcend itself. What it can do is transcend any definition of itself. In fact, we can say that absolute transcendence is the only non-idolatrous religion. Absolute transcendence of any form, of any definition, is non-idolatrous. If we say an idol is a static zone, they can't do anything precisely because the energy involved in it is used up in being, not in doing anything transcendent. Transcend means go across, go beyond what you were. When you were a little boy or a girl, you were so big, and then you grew and became so big, and then you grew and became so big. Each year you grew rather like a tree grows. But you never transcended yourself. What you did was transcend your previous level of development. So if ever you read in any literature about self-transcendence, don't believe it. You transcend the definition of the form with which you identify. You cannot transcend yourself. You can transcend the definition of yourself that you had made at an earlier stage, by making a new definition. So, remember, this great battle, the idea is quite rigid, the will is utterly unrigid. That is to say, it can initiate changes in anything whatever that it comes across. It can always go beyond the definition. Let us think about that very carefully that something in you, an impulsive nature in your lower tongue, does things which your reason in your head tells you are very, very silly things to do. That thing in the lower tongue will expose you to risk. It puts its foot on the accelerator and makes you jump the light. It makes you do all kinds of strange things, like go down a one-way street the wrong way. If it feels like it, it does it. And against all the laws and all the signposts, it will do such things. And this really does exist, an impulsive power inside you that is every bit as real as your definition of a triangle. Now, because these two are both present in us, an idea of the true, like the circle, and the fact of the impulsive nature that breaks the idea, that transcends it, that jumps beyond it, 
these two being co-present in the human being, there arises a situation where the human being has to choose at any given moment whether he will obey an idea or allow an impulse to operate immediately. <coughs> now, if we think about immediacy, we mean a kind of action of the will which is not mediated by thought. Something you do without consideration. Energy leaps up from the tub and goes into action and it has not previously examined the form of its action nor the consequences. It does things without counting the cost. And as a matter of fact, in the romantic literature, the person who does things without counting the cost is worshipped as a great hero. He does the most extraordinary things precisely because of his non-subjection to the truth, to the idea, to the rigid form. But because these two are co-presented, there arises in the middle a necessity for choosing whether to be impulsive or whether to be rational at any given moment. And this realm of choice is called the beautiful. There is beauty, and beauty is the realm in which we choose whether to be impulsive or truthful, whether to be rigid in our application of the geometrical formula, or allow power to operate regardless of the consequences. And in between this terribly strong driving power and this totally rigid true idea is the zone in which feeling operates. Now by feeling we do not mean emotion. Emotion is an overspill of energy when the will is pushed into an idea and the idea cannot contain it. So it flows out of the idea from the excessive input of the energy of the will into the idea. That is emotion. But feeling in this balancing center is not like that at all. Feeling is the capacity that we have to evaluate an impulse without letting the impulse overflow. To look at an idea which is rigid without becoming rigid. So feeling is a very mysterious thing. Which is a most mysterious capacity of a human being. That he can actually contemplate rigid truth like pi ratio, logic, mathematics, geometry and can be equipped with a tremendous driving impulsive power and yet, he's able to balance these and to hold the power that would rush into activity and to hold the idea that's absolutely rigid and to look at both simultaneously and then decide from in itself by looking at the rigid form of truth and looking at the amount of impulsiveness can then decide how much power to operate with what true form. And this is called beauty. So that all that you call beauty 
in art, in life, springs out of this peculiar center of decision, this center of choice. And the activity of a being is called beautiful when he can actually balance his will and his idea. Supposing you decide you go to London suddenly, and you jump up and rush out, and jump in your car, slam it into gear, and find that you're not the first car at the gate, but you're in the middle. That would be an impulsive act. And you'd probably have to come back, unless your car were very powerful, it would not be able to fly its way through all the other cars in front of it. You'd probably have to have second thoughts, come back, and say, with the people whose cars are numbers so-and-so, who are in front of me, remove their cars, because I'm having an impulse. This, this is called self-contradiction. And it's called unbeautiful. And everybody says, mentally to themselves, that's a very unbeautiful person. Now, you are beautiful in so far as you are able to hold that tremendous power in you and the idea in you so the rigidity of the idea doesn't paralyze you and the impulsiveness of that lower term energy doesn't drive you until you decide. Now, how is it that can arise? It's very interesting because in the center of this chest here, we have a heart. Most people have it slightly to the left. It shows how abysmally cunning they have become. A few people have it on the right. It shows how foolishly non-conformist they are. Very few have it central. But the idea of having it slightly biased to the left for civilized human beings, is to give a little more importance to the idea than to the impulse. And the reason for that, evolutionarily, is because through allowing the impulse to operate without the idea, many people have been killed rather early in life. And it has given a rise to the idea that to think a little before you leap is not so bad for survival purposes. Hence a slight lean of the heart to the left. Left means thinking. Now, in this act of beauty, the fact that it is possible to do it, the fact that there's a thing called good taste in art, the fact that some dancer in the ballet can actually do exactly the right gesture to convey something in relation to certain music. He makes his gesture congruent with the music. And in that congruence, he's said to have good taste. He doesn't do it too much or too little. He does it just right. He has good taste. So the funny thing about beauty is that beauty is to do with taste. And you might think that was very funny until you lost your sense of smell through a bad cold and discovered that your sense of smell is largely a sense of background for taste. When you taste a thing, you are really smelling it. When you put it in your mouth and you loosen the particles of food, then the little particles that are loosed rise up. They are smelled going up the back of the mouth. 
you smell them, and most of what you call taste is smell. And because of this, if you put a couple of nose holes up there, and draw them down to make lungs, you can see how the sense of smell is connected with the chest. And that your good taste is mostly smell. Now, think about this very carefully. Only if you are able to balance the impulse and the rigid idea before you act can you do a beautiful act. But if you can do this, it shows a relation somewhere between these two poles. And how can we arrive at this relation? If the idea were absolutely separate by certain philosophers of thought, if the idea is paramount, if the idea is the ultimate truth, if there is nothing other than ultimately the truth, then there is no will. Will is an illusion, an erroneous attitude towards existence. But, on the other hand, if the willful beings say, I don't believe in ideas, they're rubbish, rather like the Norman Baron did. If they say the idea is just an invention of wicked priests to try to curb my will, they also are in a peculiar position because they are isolated in the will from the idea. So that when they operate impulsively, they cannot operate in a direction. Because the essence of a direction is an idea. That is a form. If you go north or south or east or west, you have a compass. You have a form. You bisect angles. So, whether the person is stressed on the idea or on the will, if he insists that that only is ultimate and not the other, he's automatically wrong. So, neither the idea nor the will can be ultimate, and therefore we have to find another ultimate. When the feeling operates between the will and the idea, it demonstrates peculiar things. That originally there was a field of energy, and this field of energy is the origin of our feeling. Field and feeling are related. What you feel when you feel yourself to be is energy occupying the zone of your being. And the center of this feeling is the heart. And this feeling has polarized itself and devoted one end of itself to action, pushing the other end of itself to thinking. So instead of having a duality of two utterly alien forces, one called will, and one called idea, and never the twain shall meet, we have that the idea and the will are polarizations of feeling. Now this lifts feeling up to a very high level, but we are not talking about emotion as overspill. Now the classical philosophers have been suspicious of feeling because they were confused between feeling and emotion. 
and the willful philosophers have been suspicious of feeling because they say it gives rise to compassion. And if you have compassion, you might not be able to jump impulsively on somebody's head and smash the skeleton. So if you wanted to be a great empire builder from the will, like a Roman in the ancient world, you couldn't afford to feel, because if you were putting thousands and thousands of people to death because you wished to take over their territory to extend your empire, you couldn't afford to feel. You couldn't afford to have compassion. That means suffering with them in their feelings. So you denied it. So we have two kinds of philosophies. A philosophy of idea that recommends it, that we believe truth is ultimate. And a philosophy of will that says that the will is ultimate. Nietzsche is an example of the will philosophy and Hegel of the idea philosophy. And both of those philosophers condemn the feeling and say that anybody who feels cannot be a philosopher by definition. Either because a feeler isn't willful or a feeler is not a geometrician. They suspect the feeling because of a simple fact about it. Feeling has no edges of itself. That is to say, feeling is infinitely extending. Feeling is the infinite field of power of the universe. And prior to polarization, that is the division, into willful end and formal end, there is nothing other than this field of power and what it is feeling is nothing but the internal undulation of its own being. When it bends a little, it becomes aware of the bend. It bends a bit this way, then it bends a bit this way, it bends a bit this way, it undulates in itself. This feeling arising from its undulation is the ground of its self-awareness. So that all self-awareness of all beings, wherever they may be, no matter how low or high in the philosophical scale, is based on feeling. So that the Latin word from which we derive the word sentience means to feel primarily and secondarily to know. So when we feel, if I feel the pressure of this thing on the perspects, I tell how much friction there is in it, I'm feeling it, I can feel the drag on it according to the pressure I put upon it, and feeling is very peculiar because it allows me to think and to will. And willing doesn't allow me to think, thinking doesn't allow me to will, but feeling allows me to will and to think. So feeling is a very mysterious power. It is a power that knows itself and can do two opposites. It can make itself absolutely rigid in triangles and squares, circles and so on. Or it can move about without making any. It can move about in a wiggly way like this without making an enclosure. Or it can move around making circles. It can enclose squares and triangles. 
Giving can be warmth. Therefore, feeling is really the source of willing and thinking. So the philosophers of thinking and the philosophers of willing are both at fault because they think that their particular view is prior to the opposite view. And both say that feeling itself is too indeterminate, too ill-defined, to be worth bothering with. And there are many philosophers who have discounted any person who tried to think started to allow that there was a thing like feeling. We've had philosophers who have been doing very well in their rational process and then they suddenly started to think about feeling and allow that feeling had a function and the moment that has happened then the philosophers of the idea, the classical philosophers have said, oh, he stopped being a philosopher now he started going funny and artistic and mystical. And the volitionalists have said, he stopped being a philosopher now because he's balancing himself instead of doing things. Now, can there be a philosophy of feeling, a feeling philosophy? The answer is yes. But we haven't seen it fully developed in history precisely because it doesn't bash people about and therefore it doesn't build empires, and it isn't rigidly defining situations, therefore it doesn't build philosophies. And there are two greats in the history of the human race, the great thinkers and the great world builders. The great world builders who make the empire, the great thinkers who give a rationale of making that empire. And these two greats have put out of court feeling, which is actually their own origin. And when you feel inside that hexonic field, inside this field here, you see that you can focus on this circle and see the process there in which you make petals or you could shift your attention from there to there and do the same thing here. Couldn't you? You can do it wherever you like. In infinite space, you can start doing the same thing over here again. We can just do exactly the same thing. And just another. Now observe that when we shift consciousness, we do not shift a body. If I look at this circle, and then at this circle, and then at this circle, I'm not shifting anything other than what is called attention. True that my eyeball, if the picture is large, will roll along while I'm looking at it from side to side, but the movement of my eyeball doesn't cause the shift of my attention. But the shift of my attention is followed by the movement of the eyeball. I am aware of a periphery around the circle. I am aware of space beyond the circle. I can see this lamp shining here peripherally, but I can see the space beyond it. My awareness includes awareness of space, and space is infinite. Therefore, my awareness is infinite. Therefore, I can be aware there's a person sitting here, 
and another person sitting next to him, and then I can say, I will now focus, turn the eye on Peter, turn the eye on to Claire, turn the eye on to Dr. Wadsworth, on to Barbara Wadsworth, and so on. I'm shifting my eye along, the physical eye, after I've shifted my attention. So, curious thing, this field, which is infinitely extended and cannot go anywhere, and therefore in which movement is totally impossible, is incapable of stopping me shift my attention. So this absolutely rigid field of form that we call the hexonic field does not immobilize consciousness. The consciousness itself, infinitely extended by its intention, has created this hexonic field. By its focus, it has made these circles throughout infinity. And by a simple shift of focal intention in itself, it gives rise to what is called movement. Really the whole of space is full, absolutely, of those circles, which are little vibratory pressures and relaxations alternating. And when I look at you all, I can shift my attention from this side to this side and make my eyeball follow so that I focus on my friend John Cook. I focus on that girl with the hairdo called Peg and Abel behind writing a note. I see Hannah Brig up there at the back and I saw her while I was looking at John. I mentioned her later but I saw her and I'm aware of her presence simultaneously. Now, if we talk about this carefully, I am aware of John's presence, I'm aware of Hannah's presence, I'm aware of Herbie's presence, I'm aware of Bernard's presence and so on. All these presences are pilar essences. A presence is a pi ratio essence. That is, it's in this hexonic field, there is a circle called Bernard Lawrence. There's another one called Herbie Hunter. There's one called John Foote. And each of these circles has its name and its form. Think about it very carefully. All of these circles coexist in absolute simultaneity. We are all co-present. And the supreme presence of presences is that which comprises all our little circles in itself and itself is watching, that is, is aware of the feelings of tension inside itself each little tension zone constituting an individual, like Bernard or Hannah, so on. Consider what that means. It means that in the realm of the eidetic, no form ever moves, but the intention moves in the consciousness. The form can't move because it's already infinitely extended, being infinitely extended, you can't go anywhere because it's already there. But the consciousness can focus in point A, point B, 
point C, and so on. So by a simple shift of consciousness, there is apparently a movement of body. Think of the implications of that, and let us go back to consider our trying again. The true is the form absolutely unchangeable in the hexonic field. The good is the amount of energy we put in our intention to focus. The amount of energy of intention to focus. Focus is focus. That means force, strike. A blow struck by an energy is called a focus. And this focus is consciousness. Consciousness has a mysterious power of being able to convert, to bring itself down to one of those hexonic circles. You can do this. It has created these hexons in this way by this weird inherent power of self-focus. A very ancient magical word was forehat. F-O-H-A-T. It meant the equivalent of let there be. Forehat. That is to say, take the force and fix it in opposition. And then nail the opposing forces. Power, form, assessment in feeling. Consider this very carefully. It means that any single person here can actually interfere with its own state. And because all these circles are intermeshed, it can interfere with the state of any other circle within the infinite field. You can change your mood and interfere with the mood of the person next to you. You could alter your breathing rate and they would become aware at first time consciously and then consciously that you're breathing differently. It's not uncommon for wives to say in the middle of the night to your husband, why are you breathing like that? You're doing something. What are you doing? You're interested in something other than me. Where are you? They're very, very aware of these changes of rhythm, even in the breathing. Now, a male mind can think, oh, well, she just noticed that my breathing was different, so I'll control my breathing. But the moment he controls his breathing, she becomes aware that he's controlling his breathing. And she says, why are you controlling your breathing? True? One or two heads recognize it. So there's really no escape for the male mind because the moment he becomes aware that it's under observation from feeling and he makes an adjustment to protect itself from this invasion of feeling, the feeling being that owns him, says, why are you controlling yourself? Don't you wish to be read? Don't you wish to be felt and examined by my intuitive feeling? There is no escape. There is no escape because this feeling is the field of reality. You cannot insulate yourself from feeling. It's found in the electronic theory. You can't insulate from a field. You can insulate a wire sufficiently to let an electric current, a running row of electrons go down it, 
and you can, by insulating material with rubber and plastic and so on, make it stay in the wire. But you cannot stop a field appearing round it outside the rubber. Confining a field is absolutely impossible. You can relatively force them by electromagnetic trickery and magnetism to narrow themselves slightly, but you cannot eliminate their capacity for transcending the limitation of the insulating material. So we can say that peeling itself is already transcendent. <coughs> Think of that very carefully. If instead of thinking, you fellows, you start feeling, just feel around instead of thinking, you become aware of other beings. Now, if you think carefully about your favourite idea, you can forget that there are any other beings in the world. You can forget so much you could actually go out and enjoy yourself. And then about 11.30, remember that you were married. It can actually happen. I've known it happen. It's not just a joke. Sure, he's only married three months. But it is possible to focus on your favourite idea so strongly that you don't know anything else exists. But the moment you start feeling, you do know that there are other feelings, that there are other beings, and that they don't feel identical with yourself. So the feeling is essential transcendence. Feeling transcends in two directions. It transcends any idea you care to formulate, because every idea is representable by a circle, which includes and excludes, and it transcends in the direction of the will, because in order to will, you have to converge and bring yourself towards a point, progressively, like that, as you're going along. And that convergence removes awareness of what is going on around you. So feeling transcends the will and feeling transcends the idea. We've seen the two kinds of great, the great thinkers, the Hegel's, the Spinoza's, the Plato's. When we read the history of the human race, what do we find? A chapter called Great Thinkers. And another one called Great Empire Builders. And only when people become more and more sensitive do they have a section called Great Artists Who Feel. But they're considered as a sort of decoration for the empire builders and the thinkers. But in fact, that which they consider to be a mere decoration is the source of the empire builders' energy and of the form of the philosophy builder. So the feeling is absolute. Feeling is transcendent and feeling is the only non-idolatrous thing we've got. An idea pinning down in an act of identification, tying your feeling down into identification, that idea is an idol. An impulse of will making your body do something is likewise an idol. An idol of power. You have two kinds of idols. 
idols of power and idols of truth. Idols of empire builders. Idols of philosophy builders. But the feeling can break identification and when it does so, there is a total transcendence of the idea, of the philosophy, and of the will of the empire. So that any proposition whatever in any period of history can be transcended by theme. And this preoccupation with the examination of feeling is only just beginning to appear in the human race as a serious subject matter for consideration by philosophers, by scientists, and even by empire builders. We must become conscious of our feeling as transcending the idea. When we get an idea, we must feel around the idea. We must feel how other people react to this idea. We must feel how it affects the impulse of the will to act in ourselves and other people. And in this feeling assessment is this beauty. So that if you ask yourself, which is it best to be? What is the automatic thing? If you were told that truth, beauty and goodness were separable and you had to choose which of the three you would choose, which would it be? Any offers? Well, the more intelligent you are, the more you will say beauty. If you are impulsive, you might say good, will. If you are a bit rigid in the intellect, you might say true. But if you are merely true, you'd be rigid and dead. And if you are merely willful, you wouldn't be in any one place two seconds together and you would have no formal awareness of what you were doing and you would just be a continuously travelling vectoring energy going nowhere in particular so the beauty which balances these two processes is the ultimate reality from which we derive and the ultimate goal towards which we are going now there's a very ancient saying that says you can never gain something that you haven't already got. Now, some people have been very frightened by this. They say, well, I haven't got much money. That means I can never gain it. Or I haven't got much sense. That means I can never gain it. What it actually means is you are already in full possession of infinite sentience, infinite sensitivity, infinite beauty. You are already in full possession. But, you have made a little mistake of thought or will. Either you have conceived yourself in thought to be finite, to be limited, or you have impulsively operated as if you were an independent being. Two ways of falling. Fall into idea in which you believe you are separate or separable from other beings, and the fall into will, in which you impulsively do so. And both of those falls are a fall out of the transcendence of feeling. Imagine an infinite field of power, 
extended in all directions and imagine this power perfectly balanced. And imagine this power in its perfect balance is perfectly reflexive of its own state. Nothing can disturb it. It knows itself absolutely. Imagine this power has the power by its own focus to bring a circle into being. And imagine it produces a circle inside itself. A sphere. And it pulses this inside its consciousness. That's fine. But, supposing, having posited this sphere and started it rolling, it becomes interested in the rolling sphere and becomes fascinated by it. Fascinated means bound. Bound by its own object. It has made a sphere. Now it looks into the sphere and thinks, what a lovely sphere I've made. I wonder what's inside it. I will go in and I will have a look. Now if it remembered that it made the sphere around a zone of nothing except pure sentience, it wouldn't have to go in, would it? Because it would know what it would find itself. It has posited the sphere inside itself and been delighted with the sphere. The sphere has lit itself up in its consciousness. And this sphere is an original dwelling, an original house. And then it goes inside the house. And it looks at the walls of the sphere. And it becomes very interested in the sphere. It becomes so interested, it puts so much energy inside that sphere, it's examining the walls of the sphere, that it forgets that there is an outside to the sphere. Sounds silly, doesn't it? To do a thing like that. But that is precisely what the human soul has done. Here we are, down on earth, and what do we look at? In the night sky, we join hands with the famous son of an infamous woman astronomer, and we look into the sky, and we are looking at the inside of the sphere. What do we see? Stars. Funny lights. We are so delighted with them, we spend thousands of years drawing them, making maps of them, and observing that they seem to go around the centre. And we actually keep little time counts of them. Do, 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 do you know there's a, one of those lights that appear on this year for 550,000 million light years? Isn't it interesting? You get a touch of the Patrick Moores. <laughs> now, you sit inside your sphere on Earth and you start counting these blasted things and then you think, I wonder what I am. I must invent a name for it. I know. I started counting those bright things. I'll call them stars. And so they were called stars. And the totality of them were called Astarte. And they said, we don't want everyone to know about this, so we'll have a secret code. And we'll pretend there's a goddess called Astarte. 
And we'll pretend we're worshipping her. So that when people find us walking about in my library, instead of saying you're crackers for looking at those lines, they'll say they are worshippers of Astarte. True, we keep falling down wells while we're doing it. <coughs> but we have a contract with each other to drag each other out of the well. Thus began Astarte worship. And from that lovely beginning, we go on to study things. We keep that one going, you know. But we also study things a bit nearer. And the solar system. And the planets. And then we start studying other things on Earth. Anything, whatever we do. The back leg of a frog, 40 volume introduction. The important thing is to be interested in what is going on inside this great sphere. Now, there's a few thing. Interest is energy input. And when you put energy into a thing, you say, it is good. You decide that you will study donkeys. So you set yourself a definite amount of energy to do it. And you build yourself a promise, the Nobel Prize of the Edmund, you're a specialist in donkeys. You're going to write an absolute authoritative book on the donkey. It should be very fat and full of plates of all kinds, including fold out figures. And for this, you get a prize. And because of this, there's a tremendous accumulation on the inside of this great sphere called knowledge. People are absolutely astounded by it. They go into a library, they see rows and rows of books, and they think all these books are full of knowledge. I haven't read them all. Oh me, oh my. Now if somebody tests me suddenly, how many hairs on the nose of a donkey, and I can't reply, I'm going to feel a perfect fool. So I must start reading this fat volume of donkey law. And there is a conspiracy on the part of publishers and writers of fat books to encourage this idea. And the great Gnostics of the early Christian years got into trouble for exposing this trick. And they said, you know that great sphere that you talk about and that some people have declared to be God and you have to bend the knee to it and obey it. It is really a great big jailer, an archon, whose sole job there is to keep you fascinated inside the sphere, to keep it going, to keep the interest going. Meanwhile, on the outside of that same sphere, there is one eternal, infinitely spreading smile. All it does outside there is smile. To think about what's going on inside that circle. <laughs> now, we could never get out if ever we were in. Which is very, very important. You can never get out if ever you were in. You never were in this sphere. The sphere has always been inside consciousness. And this consciousness you are. In the equation, Aham Brahma. I am this extension. I have never been locked up. True, I was told I should be locked up by my educators. I have tried to believe it. I have done O levels and A levels. 
BAs, MAs, PhDs, you name it, I've done. But I never could believe it. I tried to be good. As Luxembourg says, I'm closing down. Because I know that I should. But I can't believe it. This is a peculiar thing about the human race. It has tried and does try to believe things it doesn't believe. Haven't you tried to believe in God at some time in your life sitting on a cloud out there? When you've gone a bit wiser, haven't you swapped it and said it's not really on a cloud out there? It's a sort of universal intelligent part. You've done your best, haven't you? But you don't believe it. You can't believe it. If you try to believe it, you become what's called confused. Because if you try to do something you can't do, you have what is called double presentation. The thing you're supposed to believe in is the fact that you can't believe it. Double presentation. That's confusion. You never were identified fully with your physical body, were you? Were you, Herbie? Did your consciousness ever actually get down to the body so that you thought and felt that you only extended up to that skin and that you had no rights beyond it? Otherwise you wouldn't have got married, would you? Even marriage is a kind of transcendence, isn't it? Of the measly little limits of your skin surface. You've always known this, haven't you? Everybody has always known that they've never been fully identified with the physical organs. They have tried to be to please mummy and daddy, or school teachers, or university professors, even mullets. They have tried to believe what they cannot believe. Because the reality that you cannot get rid of is the infinity of your feeling sensitivity. Thank you for listening to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications for future episodes.